You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. The debate over policing has become one of the very most polarized topics in all American politics. Do you back the blue, or do you want to see the police defunded? Well, today, we're going to be speaking with someone who studied the challenges and shortcomings of police work from both sides of the thin blue line. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and our guest today is Rosa Brooks, a well-known Georgetown law professor who, in her 40s, made the unlikely decision to join the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department as a reserve officer. During her time patrolling Washington's 7D police district, she saw firsthand the tremendous pressures that average police officers face as they go about their work, as well as the many ways that policing fails when it's used as the go-to approach to fix all of society's problems. She wrote about that experience in her new book, Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. Rosa Brooks, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Keith, thank you very much for having me. So I think that this book is a really helpful window into a world that uh, a lot of us really don't have any access to whatsoever. There's very specific challenges and very specific realities that police officers face uh, on a day-to-day basis that, uh, you know, to really understand this debate, you kind of have to get into that world a little bit. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I I really want to help our listeners understand a little bit more exactly where it is that you're coming from in all this, uh, because uh, when we say, you know, an an unlikely decision to join the police uh, force, it, it really was quite unlikely, uh, especially since uh, police work really does not run in your family. Not really, um, no. Uh, I do, in fact, have a great uncle who was a California Highway Patrol officer, but that was a while ago. Um, No, I come from a family of left-wing writers and activists, and when I first told my mother that I was thinking of doing this uh, reserve officer gig, she said, you know, how can you do that? The police are the enemy. Um, so no one in my family was was thrilled about this, uh, and it took took a lot of time to persuade them that I wasn't completely out of my mind. And so you have uh, this background in in law and this background in uh, human rights work, and you've you've worked with the government. And uh, one day you heard about this possibility of uh, joining the uh, police department as a reserve officer. Uh, first of all, I'll tell us a little bit about what the reserve officer program is, because I don't think many of our listeners would recognize that as a possibility. And, and then walk us through your decision for wanting to make that happen. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a strange, a weird and amazing program. Um, I can never decide if it's more amazing or more weird. DC has a program where you can volunteer. You have to apply, but it's not a terribly high bar, as we, as we see. <laughs> um, you can apply to be a reserve police officer you go through the same police academy training as full-time career officers. It takes about six months. Um, and when you graduate, you come out as a sworn armed officer with the same police powers that a full-time paid career police officer has in D.C. Um, so a lot of cities have programs where reserves or auxiliaries do things like direct traffic if there's a parade. D.C. actually lets you be a real cop, uh, which is kind of strange. Uh, I believe, actually, that Los Angeles has a similar program, um, but Mm. most cities don't. 
And, and I have to admit, when I first heard about this program, I thought, you're kidding me. You know, you let me be a law, you let me be a cop. You're going to give a law professor a gun. You must be out of your mind. Um, yeah. And it just it just did seem so mind blowingly weird that you could volunteer to be a police officer with a badge and a gun. But it, it immediately just seemed fascinating to me because just mm. as you were saying a minute ago, the world of policing, I think for most of us who aren't police officers, it, it seems so closed, so opaque from the outside. And mm -hmm. just having the chance to get a better understanding of, of how it looks from the inside uh, was something that from the time I first heard about it, I just thought it was, it was really fascinating. And, and you know, I, I, like most people who have been paying any attention in the last decade, uh, was very aware of the criticisms of policing, uh, about, about race in policing, about use of force in policing, and all the reasons to think, certainly from the outside, that policing needs to be changed significantly. But I guess I've always believed pretty deeply that if you want to change something, you first need to understand it. And this seemed like a, a really amazing and strange way to come to understand it better. Uh, once again, speaking with Rosa Brooks, a law professor at Georgetown University, about uh, her new book, Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. And that uh, concern with understanding and with really getting into the the heads of, of people on all sides of uh, this problem, that really comes across in the book. And uh, I, I think it's important to say uh, early on in this conversation that this is not a book that demonizes police officers, but it's also not a book that shies away from uh, acts of cruelty that you witnessed uh, uh, or acts of uh, probably more commonly callousness uh, on the part of uh, police officers. Uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit about the approach that you took to writing this book and, and putting together these experiences you had. Yeah, you know, I didn't do this in order to write a book. Um, I only decided to write a book when I was about a year into it. Um, uh, and once I decided to write a book, Initially, I thought I was going to write a more academic book. You know, I was going to write the, the masterly scholarly work on what's wrong with policing and how we can fix it or something like that. And the more I, I thought about it, the more I did, the more I thought that, no, don't do that. Partly because a lot of people have written that book. Um, I don't know that we need that book. Um, but mostly because I thought that what's missing from the debate about policing is not, not long academic books with a lot of footnotes, but but stories that make the various dilemmas more real for people. And that was something that I, I thought I might have a relatively unique ability to do as someone who, who very much had a foot in both worlds, a foot in the, in the world of academia, sort of the liberal policy circles, very critical of policing practices, and a foot in the policing world. So I, I, I decided in the end that the best thing to do, in fact, really felt like the only thing I could do was just talk about what I saw and I experienced and just tell some stories from policing um, and let readers really decide for themselves what to make of all this. I, you know, I certainly have opinions, but, but I thought that showing and not telling was probably, probably the way to go. Right. And a lot of the complexity of what you see uh, and the messiness, uh, the moral messiness of what you see, it, it's left in the book. And uh, oftentimes, you know, the reader really is left scratching their head 
what am I to make of this? How, how do you uh, solve these contradictions? Uh, maybe you could speak, if you could, a little bit about the, the, the scale of the problem that American policing is facing, because you, you have made a focus of your work uh, over the years, uh, violence uh, throughout the world. You've worked in several uh, war-torn and uh, catastrophe-torn areas and, and uh, witnessed the aftermath of uh, violence in many of those regions. How, how does uh, how, how does American policing and, and uh, the American city fit into that broader uh, range of work that you've been carrying out? <laughs> well, on the one hand, you know, early in my career in particular, I worked on things, uh, you know, mass atrocity situations where civil wars, where rebels were hacking off people's limbs and things like that. And and so the good news, the good news, Keith, is that American p- policing looks, you know, awfully good in comparison to ethnic cleansing in the Balkans or... or it's good to put civil, things in perspective. Yeah, civil conflicts in Sierra Leone um, uh, or Uganda. Um, the, the bad news is, and I think probably most of your listeners know this, um, American policing relative to other democracies that are at peace is is really is stunningly violent. Um, the number of people killed by police in the U.S. each year, uh, well over a thousand. We still don't have really solid numbers. Um, and on the one hand, I, I want to be quick to say some of those really are situations where police use force and self-defense. You know, some of them really are. Um, crime is real, Criminals often have guns and so on. On the other hand, we also know, and this has obviously been the reason we've had massive protests, um, we also have unarmed people who end up killed by police each year. And and we also have armed people who didn't pose a threat. You know, not everybody who is armed is an immediate lethal threat. So So it's certainly fair to say that it's a really good question. Why is policing so violent in this country and and part of what I thought would be interesting to find out, I've always been sort of fascinated by the relationship between law and violence and the kinds of narratives, the kinds of stories people tell themselves and others to explain why typically, you know, my violence is okay, your violence is not okay is usually what people mm. are trying to do. And, you know, whether you're whether you're a, you know, Serb in, in the Bosnian War or whether you're a, a rebel a rebel leader in, in Uganda. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'm going to go out and be a sadist today. I think I'm going to go out and cause suffering for no good reason. Um, you know, or almost nobody. Probably there are a few people who do that. You know, most people wake up in the morning and they, they want to be able to look at themselves in the mirror at the end of the day and they want to do good. And sometimes they're doing some mental somersaults to come up with stories that, that justify what they're doing. And I was I was sort of interested in seeing in a world in which there's so much criticism of policing um, and on the one hand, we've got this this narrative on the left, which is just policing is racist, police are brutal, end of story. Um, and on the far right, we have police are, are underappreciated heroes, end of story. I wanted to see what police say to each other and to themselves about what they're doing and why. All right. So we're going to dig a little bit uh, deeper into the, some of those stories in just a second. Real quick, I want to remind listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Benconi. Today, we are speaking with Rosa Brooks, a law professor at Georgetown University, whose new book is Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City, recounting her experience serving as a reserve police officer in Washington, D.C. for a number of years uh, with an academic eye and uh, as well as now a, a police person's eye, uh, 
both at the same time. And so uh, getting into some of those stories that you've been hinting at all, all along, some of the uh, very early experiences that were quite formative for you came uh, during uh, the police training process. Uh, tell me about some of the lessons that were instilled in you during that process and how they end up shaping the kind of police work that we get. Yeah, you know, most of the training we received was was very narrowly tactical in focus, you know, memorize the nine property forms and what color pen you used to fill them out in and, you know, how to handcuff a prone person versus a standing person. Um, We weren't talking about violence and policing or race and policing, you know, that we weren't talking about the the big issues that the rest of the country even then was talking about. This is 2016 and that year as well, there were enormous protests, not on the scale of 2020, but pretty significant in many U.S. cities about police killings. We weren't talking about that. It often, But that said, there, there was sort of an unofficial lesson of the police academy, which was, you know, anybody could kill you at any time. And we spent a lot of our time talking about officer safety tactics, and we spent a lot of time both in the classroom and outside of it watching videos of police officers getting killed. Um, You know, police go up, do a traffic stop, and somebody jumps out of the car and shoots at them. You know, they go domestic violence call, somebody races out the door and shoots at them, and they're dead. And, and, And... we were constantly having it drilled into us, uh, this lesson. You know, there's no such thing as a routine call. Any situation could turn lethal in an instant. You have to constantly be on the alert, you know, look at people's hands, not their eyes. It's their hands that are going to kill you. Um, you know, don't let them sit down on a sofa. They could have a weapon hidden in the sofa cushions. Don't let them go to the kitchen. They could grab a butcher knife. And that lesson, I think, is very powerfully instilled, um, in police officers that you've got to be constantly alert because everybody's trying to kill you. But I think it's actually a a somewhat dangerous and misleading lesson. Um, Misleading how so? Well, on the one hand, it's it's, it's perfectly true. Any situation could turn lethal in an an instant. But that's actually true for all of us, right? You know, you you could go to the convenience store and you could end up being there in the middle of a holdup and you could get killed. But you probably still go to the convenience store and you don't worry too much about it. And, and policing is a dangerous job, but it's not nearly as dangerous as police officers think. I, I find that police officers tend to have a really exaggerated perception of statistically how dangerous it actually is. You know, in Washington, D.C., for instance, no police officers have been, it, the D.C. Metropolitan Police, no police officers have been killed on duty in two decades. Uh, the U.S. Capitol Police officer was recently killed on January 6th. For that. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's not nearly as dangerous as people think. And the downside of being really primed to think anybody could kill you at any time is you start thinking everybody's going to try to kill you all the time. And the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of people are not going to try to kill you. But if you go into every encounter with the assumption, the fear that that could happen, it really colors how you interact with people. And I think in the worst case scenarios, and we've seen this over and over, um, we get what we end up with is a police officer who gets trigger happy, who sort of panics and ends up killing an unarmed or harmless person because they panic. Um, And that's terrible. Um, But it also, I think, it leaches over into more uh, minor interactions. You know, who do you stop and frisk? Um, What vehicles do you stop? How do you talk to the person you're stopping? If they reach into their pocket, do you scream at them? Um, And those things obviously 
aren't on the scale of shooting somebody, but in terms of the impact they can have on how much members of a community like and trust police, they can have a tremendous impact. You know, if you're always being yelled at by cops who are scared of you, um, that's going to affect how you think about police. I want to get back into that contradiction that you're raising uh, right there in in just a second, because I think it's really important. But uh, I want to pause first and just acknowledge that uh, some of those statistics and some of the the, the, uh, observations that you were pointing out there, I I can imagine it would be difficult for uh, many in law enforcement to hear that because, you know, on the one hand, uh, statistics are one thing, but uh, I've only been working and reporting in in the Bay Area for, you know, a few years now. And I've I've been to more than one police officer's funeral, and uh, each one is is, uh, tragic, and each one really, you know, puts on full display the the, the sacrifice uh, that officers uh, are making. And so how do you how do you thread that needle of, you know, acknowledging the risks that are out there uh, and sometimes the less salient risks, you know, not not the risks are not as big as, as we sometimes think they are, but still at the same time, not losing sight of the sacrifice that that real people are making. That That's right. Um, you know, uh, right before I started at the police academy, there was a, a young female officer in a neighboring jurisdiction who was killed her first day on the job. You know, she was right out of the academy and she and her training officer went to a domestic violence call. And as they were walking from their car to the house, uh, the door burst open and a man with a gun came out and shot them. And she was killed and Two of, I think a couple of the other officers ended up badly injured, although they survived. And it, it can absolutely happen. But I think it's, you know, I guess I draw a, a, an analogy to things like um, fear that your child is going to be abducted by a pedophile in the playground, right? It does happen. It happens. And when it happens, it's horrifying. But it happens very, very rarely. And if we respond to things like that by saying, you know, I'm going to lock my kid in the closet for the rest of their life because I don't want them to be taking any risks, um, well, you're going to have some other problems, right? Your, your kid's going to have some issues if you never let them out unsupervised, too. Um, so I think it's, it's, I think we in general, humans in general, it's not just cops, it's humans. We're not that good at assessing risk and probability. And we mm. tend to, when something terrible happens, we tend to think it's very common, even if it's statistically not very common. And, and one thing I often, you know, do, yeah, cops, my cop friends hate it when I say this. I, I say, you know, Policing does not actually even make the top 10 most dangerous jobs in America list. Um, Mm. The most dangerous occupations are things like logging and roofing and refuse Mm -hmm. collection. And granted, people aren't usually shooting at loggers and trash collectors. Mm -hmm. But even if you just look at deaths by deliberate homicide, you know, somebody shoots at you or whatever, stabs you, um, policing is only about half as dangerous as being a taxi or limousine driver. Um, but nobody runs around saying, gosh, we must arm all the taxi drivers and we must train them to immediately pull their weapon, you know, if a passenger reaches into a bag unexpectedly. Um, and in fact, we would think that was ridiculous. And police officers are people who are trained and paid to take some level of risk. So I think, I think yes, police absolutely have the right to defend themselves. Sometimes they have to. Not every police shooting, not every police killing is some kind of terrible, brutal crime on the part of the police. Some of them are perfectly legitimate responses to, you know, police officers truly defending themselves or other people against someone else who's a lethal threat. But it's impossible when you look at the statistics on police killings and when you dig down deep into a lot of them not to conclude that there are a lot of unnecessary, unjustified police killings. And I do think the kind of jumpiness, the kind of 
anxiety that that the sort of anyone could kill you at any time training induces in people is is part of the reason for that. All right. Uh, speaking once again to Rosa Brooks about her new book, Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Uh, want to get into your experience in actual police work uh, a little bit later, but uh, real real quick, before we get there, I, I mean, I want to highlight one of the contradictions that you were pointing out a second ago. So there were these contradictory messages that you received in training. You know, on the one hand, you have a right to get home safe and you need to take it into your hands to do whatever you need to to make sure that you keep yourself safe. On the other hand, uh, as you we were mentioning a second ago, you also have to build rapport with uh, the suspects that you're dealing with. Uh, and then uh, on the other other hand, you have to follow all of the department guidelines. And, and sometimes those things really come into conflict. And uh, you, you wrote in the book that there wasn't a lot of guidance for how to navigate between those imperatives when those conflicts arose. No, I think that's right. And I, and I think that you know, when I say that the training was primarily tactical at the police academy, a lot of the time it consisted on here are the regulations, the end, you know, we're not discussing them, we're not, we're not thinking, well, does that really make sense? You just need to know what they are, because you could potentially get in trouble if you if you violate them. But but, you know, you end up having kind of contradictory and constantly changing regulations. And it is it is hard for police officers to keep track. And, and, and often, there, I mean, here's a, a, a deep paradox of policing. On the one hand, we give police officers so much power, right? The, the, the state, we, all of us, we give them guns, we give them badges, we give them the power to take away other people's freedom and even their lives. And it's just an awesome power. Uh, but on the other hand, relative to their own departments, um, Police officers often feel completely powerless, especially patrol officers who tend to be, you know, at the bottom of the of the food chain within policing. They're they're told do this, do that, be perfect, don't screw up, uh, don't get any complaints against you, follow follow a set of rules and regulations that may be difficult to follow because they're they're so convoluted and, and intricate. Um, that cops often end up feeling very helpless, like I'm going to make a mistake and I'm going to get hung out to dry. And, you know, another irony, I mean, police officers will readily acknowledge usually (laughs) that a cop who follows a car around, any cop worth their salt can find a reason to stop you if they want to. You know, there's so many traffic regulations you could be violating. It's almost inevitable that sooner or later you will violate one. and, And if a cop wants to pull you over, they'll have a reason Ironically, for cops, they often feel in the same position drivers are in with respect to cops. They feel like they're in with respect to their departments because the thicket of rules and regulations, you know, you must turn your body cam- body one camera on at this moment, but not at that moment. And you must do this and you must do that and you must do this in the following way. Are It's such a thicket of regulations that they're always doing something wrong, usually without mm-hmm. even realizing it. And so they feel like, wow, if at any moment the department wanted to get rid of me, I'm sure I'm doing something wrong and they could find it. And that makes them feel very anxious and helpless. Yeah. And here we get to some of the broader observations about the systemic reasons why this work is so difficult to do and uh, why you actually go so far as to suggest uh, that it is impossible to be a good police officer in in, in many situations. Um, Talk uh, next, if you could, a little bit about your own experience. Once you become a reserve police officer, you're you're out on the street with your badge and gun. What are some of the experiences that led you to that conclusion that this is, in many cases, impossible work to get right? Yeah. So you're presented with just such a stunning variety of problems, many of them 
fundamentally insolvable, certainly insolvable, not solu- solvable, solvable by a person with a gun, right? Um, mm. You, yes, you're called to stabbings and shootings and to take reports of armed robberies and so forth. You're also called to domestic disputes, which can be anything from a really serious domestic violence assault uh, in which somebody's been badly injured to really trivial things, you know, two adult siblings, two adult sisters have a spat over, you know, who left wet clothes in the dryer for too long and one of them slaps the other and poof, you know, it's a domestic violence offense. Um, disorderly conduct calls, you know, my teenagers didn't come home when I told them to come home, you need to find them officer calls, um, sick people going to the hospital, people have overdosed. And and in a sense, you know, we we are asking police officers to be protectors, warriors, mediators, medics, mentors, social workers, often all within the same shift. And it's it's super hard to be good at any one of those jobs. And it's almost impossible to be good at all of those jobs. And and I think that, you know, you add that to the sense of helplessness I talked about earlier of, of being kind of low person on the totem pole and you could be jettisoned by your department. I think I think it often does leave police officers feeling completely helpless, feeling like there's so much misery out there and they can do so little about most of it. Uh, and and the other social services that they might want to have just aren't there. So, you know, cops will you take somebody to the emergency psychiatric clinic because they're walking around in the middle of the street, you know, waving a broken bottle around talking to themselves. Well, they're going to be back out on the street the next day because we don't there's nowhere to put them. There's nowhere for them to go. And so police can feel like there's this resolve, revolving door of misery that they see that they can't do much to to change. And you ran into that uh, at least a couple of times yourself. There were a few arrests that you made that you do not feel good about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we once we ended up having to arrest a woman who had shoplifted laundry detergent and a multi-pack of chicken thighs uh, because she was hungry and her grandson was hungry. And we didn't actually want to arrest her. We weren't planning to, but uh, my partner ran a, a warrant check and it turned out she had an outstanding warrant uh, just for some failure to appear, which basically means that she probably hadn't shown up at a previous court hearing for some similarly trivial offense. But it essentially meant that we had to arrest her because you're not supposed to ignore a, a warrant, an outstanding warrant. And it just kind of you know, I did not feel good about this. I, you, you think, well, the, the store she shoplifted from, they didn't want her arrested. They were like, yeah, it's, you know, she's desperate. She's, she's addicted. She's not going to, um, you know, she's, she's not going to go out and be a serial killer or something here. Um, my partner and I didn't want to arrest her. Arresting her didn't make her better off or the store better off or her grandson better off. It was just bad for everybody. And that's what it was. But, but I do want to say, you know, something I think is, is really important and it gets lost frequently in critiques of policing. Police do arrest people way too often for really trivial offenses and those arrests can really hurt communities rather than helping them. But police enforce laws that they don't make. You know, police, if we are unhappy at police uh, arresting people for trivial things, that's something where we need to look in the mirror and say, huh, I wonder who elected the legislators who passed legislation criminalizing all these, all these petty offenses, leading to so many people being arrested and having criminal records for really minor stuff. And that's us. You know, that, that's, that's on us. That's not on cops. They're doing what we tell them to do. 
Right. Uh, speaking once again to Rosa Brooks about her new book, Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. This is KCBS In-Depth. So looking to those uh, broader challenges that we're all facing, obviously a lot of what you're talking about there uh, dovetails uh, really closely with the conversation on defund the police or move some portion of the funding for police to social services, find other ways to uh, address these societal problems. We've seen uh, plenty of instances of that here in the Bay Area. Uh, They've also run into trouble in a lot of instances, in particular in Oakland. There is uh, a a committee coming together of of citizens that are trying to decide what ways uh, police funding could be used for uh, other kinds of social services. And uh, given a recent spike in uh, violent crimes and homicides in the city, some members on the panel have had uh, second thoughts. So uh, obviously the questions of policing, much broader than policing, but also, you you know, you start broadening it out, you run into challenges and complications pretty fast. Yeah, you do. I mean, I think I think there actually is a lot of common ground, more than people usually realize between police themselves and critics of policing. You know, if you say to a cop, um, you know, we want to defund the police, they look at you like you're nuts and they'll sort of say, have you seen our station? Have you seen my car? Have you seen my equipment? I don't have enough resources to do what you're asking me to do now. And now you want to take resources away from me. But if you change the conversation and instead you say to that same police officer, you know, tell me about the things that you do that you don't think you should be doing, that you don't want to be doing, that you wish there was someone else there to do. Then they start saying, oh, my goodness, I wish there was a better mental health care system. Oh, I wish there was more shelter opportunities for people who are homeless. Oh, I wish there were better diversion programs for kids who commit minor offenses and I didn't have to arrest them. You know, then you get into that much, much better and more constructive conversation where I think there is a lot of common ground. The the challenge right now, and I think this is why the defund or, you know, the even more extreme version, the abolish the police uh, slogan has not gotten a huge amount of public polling support um, is that when you talk to people who live in high crime neighborhoods and they don't want no police, they want better police. You know, they don't want no police. They want they want good policing and they want good social services. If you abolish the police or, or radically slash budgets without first building up alternatives, you end up in sort of the worst of all possible worlds. And, and I, that said, you know, I think that the, the conversations to be having should be conversations about let's look ahead five or 10 years. What do we want public safety in this community to look like? And what do we need? And who currently has capacity to do that? And, and who, if we think they're not the right people, where do we want to build capacity? What investments do we need to make to do that in the future? And, and that's, a, I think, a much more... It's a longer term, but also a much more constructive conversation to have. Yeah. Well, and that's what we're looking for here today is uh, more constructive conversations. And hopefully that's what we're going to find in the years ahead. Uh, Bringing us this conversation was Rosa Brooks. One last time, she is a law professor at Georgetown University. Her new book is Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. Rosa Brooks, thank you so much. Keith, thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.